Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. My guest today was seriously the coolest dude ever. I actually ended up connecting with him via LinkedIn, read a few articles he had written and things he was doing. I just knew I had to get him on. Bite This Eye is an award-winning executive and thought leader with more than 30 years of marketing, branding, and leadership experience, along with 20 years of governance serving on like a dozen boards. He's a super passionate guy. He really cares about our oceans and the environment. And actually, by the time this episode comes out, he will have testified in front of Congress for the second time. This time, it will be focusing on the recent Southern California oil leak, talking to them about the immediate effects on communities, businesses, and the environment. So knowledgeable, so interesting. He started off his career building his own surf shop. So that should sum it up for you. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Vipe Desai. So I just need to hear one story. I don't know how many tattoos you have right now. Give me one story. Oh my gosh. Um, Maybe first tattoo. How about that? Uh, okay. First tattoo. I'm not going to show you cause it's on my leg, but, um, when I was in college, we were pretty wild. We were a pretty wild crew. I earned the nickname of hell rider. Okay. So there's a hell rider tattoo on my calf. That was my first tattoo. Well, at some point, Vipe, we're going to have to grab some drinks because I'm very intrigued with these stories. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where'd, you go, where'd you go to college? Uh, Point Loma Nazarene University. Okay. Christian, that- Christian College down in San Diego. San Diego. So you're Californian. So uh, yeah. my, my husband's from um, the OC as well. So oh. he, he grew, grew up there. Irvine, I guess. Oh yeah, I'm in Irvine tomorrow, uh, Monday for my testimony. So uh, yeah, all right. I know the yeah. Area very well. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Huntington Beach and, and Hermosa many times. So that's his hood, Cal. He's a California boy. So I, I kind of understand you people. He has no tattoos yeah. though. Uh, and then the other question I had is, how do you know Mega? You know, somebody sent me uh, something through LinkedIn that said, "Hey, this is the Desai Foundation. Are right. you affiliated?" And I'm like, no, I'm not, but I'm interested in this now. So uh, I looked into it and then I started following Mega and then she posted something about a podcast she did with you. So I listened to it and then I was like, wow, now I'm really interested in Mega and her foundation and what she's doing because I do a lot of philanthropy myself. Right. And, you know, I've been looking for a way to reconnect with my south asian roots and give back to my community and really didn't want to start off from scratch so i figured well shoot you know if the desai foundation is already up and running right why 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 you know make it more difficult to do something why not just kind of hitch my wagon to somebody else so her and i spoke and we talked about the podcast and how many similarities we had in our lives and gosh it's it's crazy it's just uh i think so many south asians uh have gone through the same thing there's right. so many commonalities so we uh we shared that in common and just our passions and everything so it was a really good conversation so in a short way that's how 
Megan awesome. and I connected. Awesome. And we're also, all of us are Gujarati, right? Yeah. 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 See? So there's a lot of us out there. All right. Let's get into it. Mike. I'm just going to jump right into it. Recent oil spill, which occurred right last week. Was it last week that it happened? Two uh, about two weeks ago. Two, two weeks, weeks ago. ago. Yeah. All right. So pipeline failures sent, I mean, I'm reading different articles, but I believe 126,000 gallons of oil into the Pacific off the coast of OC, creating a 13 square mile slick affected the wildlife, thousands of dead fish and birds washed ashore. And hunting in this area is also known as Surf City, USA, correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, that this whole area of Orange County, every every inch of coastline is so valuable to the community. It's right. what makes Orange County, Orange County. It's the beaches, it's the lifestyle, it's the surfing, everything about it from the northernmost part of Huntington Beach to the southern part in San Clemente. That entire area is just a vibrant coastal economy. Right. Um, and, you know, the numbers from the oil spill are still varying and changing. Um, okay. This morning I heard it was about 131,000 gallons. Got it. So it, it's fluctuating. Um, they're still investigating the cause of the spill it's preliminary right now but it seems as if it could have been an anchor from one of the cargo ships that was uh stationed off of our coast uh that maybe dragged the pipeline out of place and maybe created a crack in it so that seems to be the direction the investigation is going but still very preliminary right so i i read that there has been and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, two other major oil spills in that area, 2015 and then 1969 were the two biggest ones. I'm not sure if you know about them at all. Is this this anchor uh, theory? Is that a is that what's happened before? In the no, past? this is a first time. This is a okay. first time for it. Um, the last major oil spill in the area occurred in 2015, and that was in Santa Barbara. So much more further north from us but uh, what we do know is that oil spills happen where we drill so if you look at the last 50 years oil spills in california have happened in three locations over and over san francisco santa barbara and orange in huntington beach that's where the oil rigs are off of our coasts right. that's so that's the pattern that we see and the challenge is that um from the last oil spill in Huntington Beach to now, the economy has grown quite a bit more. There's much more at stake. There's much more economic activity taking place. And I think the other thing to look at is that um, while this oil spill was a disaster, we also in some ways dodged a bullet in a number of ways. The, the, the size of the spill, if it was bigger, could have been more devastating for longer periods had this oil spill traveled north instead of south the way the currents took it it could have actually shut down the two of the busiest ports in the nation which is mm -hmm. ports of long beach and port of la right. which account for billions of dollars of goods flowing in and out every day right thankfully you know local state federal agencies thousands of volunteers mobilized quickly and minimize the impact of the spill, did an incredible job cleaning things up. Uh, beaches are open again, oh, wow. the, the, the waterways are opening up too, so people can go back in the water. 
The slick is still out there. It seems to be traveling south and going back and forth from going out to sea and kind of back towards the shore just based on the currents. Okay. Um, and it might be going down to, it might hit some parts of San Diego as well, like Northern San Diego. So everybody's keeping a close eye on it. Uh, you're talking to someone that knows very little about this. So just bear with me. So first, yeah, that's okay. when you say slick, is it just the oil that's in the water? Is that what that means? Oil slick? Yes. Yeah, so an oil slick is what is on the surface, surface. of the water. Okay. Yeah. It's on the surface. It's what you're able to see. Sometimes it looks like a sheen across the water. And um, sometimes it almost looks like, uh, you know, if you have soap on top right. of water, right. it, it looks like that, but it's a little bit more shiny and colorful. And it's very visible from the sky, especially when the sun's shining on it. So that's really what's, what's dangerous because what that, that is. slick is so sticky and it can contaminate birds that land on top of the water and they can carry it to other areas. So that's really the hard thing to control are the slicks. Right. And a lot of these questions, I'm sure there's many answers to, but something like this, and, and it's great that there's been such a great response and, you know, and the beaches are open, but is something like this, this kind of ecological disaster, is it really reversible at all? Or is, it, or is there permanent damage for prepper? That is a great question. And um, I would say from my experience is that it's not reversible, unfortunately. One once oil gets into our waterways and seeps into our ecosystem along our coastal areas, and it's really hard to get out those smaller droplets. What we have seen is that nature has a way of healing itself over time. Okay. Um, but uh, that's really the best case scenario is that, you know, in the years to come, nature will kind of take care of any remnants that are missed by volunteers cleaning it up. Nature is always taking care of us, but we're not taking care of it, right? I know, I know. It's so it's so bad. And then I, and I don't know if you want to, if you can list this out, but you know, just for people to understand, I'm sure there is immediate effects of this spill, and then long term, what would be the immediate impact for this spill on on people, yeah. on the wildlife, on the wetlands? Yeah, look, the immediate effects were hit by were the were the wildlife that right. were hit. Um, these are you know, animals that call that coastal region their home. So it's yeah. really affecting them first and foremost. And we have to make sure that we get these uh, animals taken care of and that we take the areas taken care of as quickly as possible, because this is also where they cohabitat, they, you know, they right. reproduce right. and everything. They migrate uh, as well. So that is really something that, local organizations are taking uh, a, a much concerted effort on right now is getting wildlife back to as close to normalcy as possible so nature can start healing itself. Right. We don't know how long that's going to take. It could take months, it could take years, but what we can do is as much as we can clean up will mean that, that that's, it'll be that much quicker for nature to heal itself. Right. Uh, the second part is uh, you know the economy. Right. The way the economy works with an oil spill like this is how long our beaches are closed, because that is why people come down to the beach. And if people can't come down to the beach, then that means restaurants, resorts and all these other activities that surf take shops. place. 
surf shops, exactly. Which we'll get, in, which we'll get into yours eventually. Yep. Surfing, all <laughs> right. those outdoor activities along right. the coast and things like that. So, you know, with us, we've been very fortunate. The cleanup efforts have been very successful. The beaches are open so people can get back on the beach. Some of the waterways are open so people can get back into the water. So the effects were fairly minimal, but they did take a toll for about seven to 10 days. Okay. Um, and when that happens, we saw, like I heard from businesses that said that rentals dried up, people canceled their reservations, um, hotel reservations were canceled. Right. You know, if people of come course, down to the course. beach, you know, it's like they want to hang out at the beach. Yeah. And if they can't hang out at the beach, they're going to go do something else. So that economic activity has a snowball effect. If somebody's coming into town to stay at a hotel, that means that they're recreating on the beach, they're going to restaurants, they're probably getting coffee at the local coffee joint and any a number of other activities. Maybe they're renting bikes, paddleboards, surfboards, getting lessons. So many different things accompany people that visit the area. Right. But that is also coming back too. So it was a fairly small hit that uh, these businesses can quickly recover from. It will be painful, especially after going through 18 months of the pandemic to have this start. And everybody was really excited to end the summer with a, uh, a really incredible air show with planes and everything. And it had to be canceled the last day. That was something the local community was really looking forward to. And I would say that alone had a ripple effect with millions of dollars in economic activity that just vanished quickly. Right. Right. That's, that's sad. Yeah. Especially again, like you said, after like, we've all gone through a lot the past couple of years. So this is definitely not icing on the cake. Long-term effects. I don't know if you can summarize it. I'm sure there's a ton, but if you can name maybe, you know, two or three that will impact this area, the economy, the people that live there. Yeah. I think the long-term effects are going to be a little bit softer than had there been a larger spill that was more widespread. So so sorry, I'm, in, I'm interrupting you, but this seems like a pretty large spill or is it not? Is this considered like a medium-sized spill? You know, I think uh, it depends on who you ask, but I think okay. even one drop of oil in the water is right. damaging. Right. However, when you compare it to others, where there were millions of gallons of oil spilled, where as this one was a little over 100,000, somewhere between 120 and 140,000, it's minimal. I think what to keep in mind is not the size of the oil spill necessarily, but the region that is so robust with economic activity. That's the thing. So it's like size of the oil spill would, if it was bigger, would have had a larger effect in the area. Um, I think the long-term effects will be much shorter rather than, you know, had the oil spill been 500,000 gallons, which would have made it harder to clean up, longer to take to clean up, which would have left it uh, easier to seep into our ecosystem and our coastal, you know, areas and everything. So uh, we got lucky. We got lucky on this one is what I would say. Wow. So I'm also thinking about all of you guys out there volunteering, cleaning up. Is there a health danger to people that are out there, you know, cleaning all this up for everyone else? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Look, at the end of the day, ordinary people like myself can't go down there to do cleanup efforts or anything like that with wildlife or with the oil spill. Okay. Crude oil is very toxic and requires a certain 
level of skill set and understanding of how to clean it up. So regular people aren't necessarily invited to come down to help with clean these types of cleanup efforts. Got it. Which which makes sense. I would assume there's also like vapors inhaling, like there's, there's a lot of things that people have to be aware of and you probably have to be suited up as well, I would assume. Yeah, if you look at photos of the people that are down there doing the cleanup efforts, whether it's with wildlife or the tar balls on the beach, they're in hazmat suits. Right. For hazmat a reason. Suits. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's no, it's no. for a reason. So, you know, there was an outpouring of people saying, I want to come down there and help. I want to help clean up wildlife. I want to help, you know, pick up tar balls on the beach. And, you know, it was like, no, please do not come down. This is hazardous right. material. You know, it's great to see people wanting to help, but it's unfortunate that, you know, the the nature of this crude oil and its toxicity really doesn't allow. You can't just jump out there in your bathing suit and start picking up stuff. Yeah, you can't. can't. Right, right, right. So I know the investigation is still going on. And, you know, I read about the, the two other major spills in California. So the responsible party for this, I guess at the end of the day, do, do they just end up giving money? to for cleanup efforts is that usually what happens you know it varies uh there's there's a lot of litigation back and forth right. of like who's at fault when were they at fault and what should they do and um a lot of these guys have insurance policies for this type of stuff as well so it just comes back into a negotiation and a settlement i think the other thing that is still being r- rounded out is what was the economic damage and impact as well and can some of these businesses recover anything to to offset those losses or anything like that so i i wish we were able to kind of snap our fingers and solve this and settle this quickly but my guess is that this will take years to settle in 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 some way shape or another and right now the way that it's looking is if the pipeline was affected by an anchor from one of the container ships, you know, it's like, well, who's at fault? Is it the oil company? Is it the shipping company? Is it the pandemic that caused this backup at the port? And is it the previous administration's, you know, lack of finger pointing? Exactly. It's a lot of finger pointing. My guess is that at the end of the day, it'll probably be shared across a couple of different groups that will have to settle amongst themselves and go from there. But I think right now our local state and federal uh, officials and agencies are focusing on cleanup efforts and getting our businesses back in business um, and then let the investigation play out. And that's part of the uh, testimony that I'm gonna be sharing on Monday uh, with members of uh, Congress about, you know, just the impact of businesses, but they're going to hear from other experts as well about, you know, the investigation, the process, where it's at, where it's headed and things like that. I looked at your LinkedIn and I was like, okay, Vipe has done, you're doing a lot of stuff, my friend. I was like, I don't even know how to summarize all this. So I know you're a board member on a, on a lot and a lot of projects. So Ocean Institute, Business Alliance for Protecting the Pacific Coast, both the ocean are a few. I know there's more. I know you had uh, been invited by Congressman Alan Lowenthal to test- testify uh, before Congress. What year was this? That was in 2019. 2019. So not that long ago no. uh, on the harms of new offshore oil and gas drilling. So now that you're going back on Monday. 
So my question about your testimony in 2019, what do you think you took away from that? You yourself or learn from that? Well, one of the things that I learned from that testimony in going into it and then coming out of it and speaking with members of Congress and their staffers was how refreshing it was to hear testimony on this subject by layering in the economy and the impact to jobs as opposed to just the environmental harms. Right. Right. Um, I think sometimes what happens is you have the environmental groups that are beating the drums the loudest and talking about the environment and the wildlife, which is absolutely important. But when you add on the layer of the economic damage and the risk of losing jobs because of these oil spills, that's really what made members of Congress perk up. And they used parts of my testimony to craft policy, to enact climate change plans as well, because I touched on the economic and the jobs impact of an oil spill alongside the environmental damage. So really being able to, you know, use my marketing background as a storyteller to members of Congress. And many of them have continued to reach out to me over the years on different issues to help merge the different aspects of it instead of just focusing on one issue, the environment. Right. You know, it's like, well, look, all of these things play together. You There's have to look a, at the whole picture, right? Like you can't just look at yeah, it. Yeah, well, you, you have to look at the whole picture. And one of the things that I, I told them was that there's a reason why property values are higher closer to the ocean and the beach than they are further away from it. Everything is more expensive as you get closer to the beach. And right. it's not because it's closer to the beach necessarily. It's because of the beach right? Okay, itself. People want to go to the beach. Therefore, a hotel room is $300 a night if you want to be on the beach as opposed right. to $99 if you want to be an hour away from it. Right. Right. So, so it's all about being close to nature. Everyone, everyone wants it. Everyone wants it. Um, so, you know, being able to tie that together and build a rapport with congressional leaders, lawmakers, the folks that enact policy. Policy changers, yeah. Yeah. Having a seat at the table and sharing pragmatic thinking and just saying, listen, we understand that there are lots of jobs and economic components to this conversation. And we're sensitive to not saying get rid of this and hurting right. this economy and losing jobs over here. But we're saying we have to look at a way to transition from one energy source to another energy source in a way that keeps the economy moving along. And they appreciate that pragmatic thinking. It's 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 very steady handed. Right. Um, it's not finger pointing. It's not about blaming. It's about how do we solve this together? Right. And I think that's been one of the things is that um, you know, usually it's businesses and government agencies or environmental groups and government agencies it's that are kind of, it's not both. And, and having this trifecta of businesses, environmental groups and government agencies and leaders come together, we seem to have a really good conversation going and we're more understanding of each other's needs. It, and it would seem like that would be the obvious thing to do, right? Like it has to be the trifecta in order for anything to get done or for everyone to kind of, like you said, perk up in different ways. So 
Personal question for you. How do you prep for something like this on Monday? Like, I appreciate the fact that you're a storyteller because I think that's very important. And then your pragmatic approach. So you just combine the two and, and then deliver what you know? Yeah, it's combining both and understanding what the committee wants to hear. So when they tell me the title of the hearing and they outline some of the things they want to hear. Which I is, start- sorry, really quick, the title... Is Southern California oil leak, right? Investigating the immediate effects of community on communities, businesses, and the environment. Exactly. So, the trifecta. Exactly. It's the trifecta. And, you know, I think um, once they settled on that title, uh, Congressman Lowenthal, who I'd worked with in the past with my testimony, immediately, you know, his team reached out to me, as did uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter's team as well. Um, knowing that I blend all three of these items together, right. you know, I'd already started hearing from businesses about the impacts. I'd already started hearing from environmental groups of the impact. So I'd already kind of started to collect this information for helping to respond. You know, once I got the information, I just started writing everything down and once I kind of write my testimony down, I share it with other thought partners. So Oceana is a thought partner of mine, Surfrider Foundation. There's some attorneys that I work with as well that specialize in uh, helping craft testimony. So my job is to lay out the framework and put right. all my thoughts on paper. And I've learned to not get nitty gritty on the grammar, the P's, the Q's, the I's and the T's and everything. Just get everything down first, then let everybody weigh in. And that's what's happened. And in fact, just before our podcast this morning, I got a final draft of my testimony. So I'll have to be going through that after our call and getting it ready for submission when I first did it in 2019, I was really nervous right? Um, just because it's, it's a big know, deal. It's, it's a big deal. It's <laughs> yeah. going in the congressional record. And it was like, Vibe, don't screw up. We're you also know? like representing what I'm reading, 55,000 businesses, basically. Yeah. 55,000 businesses. That's, that's, slight, that's some pressure. <laughs> that's some pressure. That's some pressure. But, you know, look, I, I, I remember I, I spoke to a good friend of mine. I told him that I was nervous. And he goes, look, you, you don't have to be nervous. You're the messenger. Okay. What what you have to do is deliver this for your 55,000 members. It's not about you. And I go, oh, I know it's not about me. I just don't want to screw up for the 55,000 businesses. And even those that aren't our members, you know, representing them in a way that, uh, you know, they will be proud of. So once I got into that frame of mindset, it was much easier. And, um, you know, they, they, they make it pretty easy. It's like, it's like, sit down, you know, look at the clock when it's green, you're fine. When it's, you know, yellow, you got a minute and red is 30 seconds. You know, right. there's a light in front of you, you know, right. so you know what you got to do. It's like debate team back in the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, you just spoke to them two years ago, right? Which is not a long time ago. What, new information i know it's i know this is specific to this bill but what other things do they need to hear about the effects of this bill like what new information are you going to give them well i'm going to give them real stories of real businesses okay um in in 2019 my testimony was really more based around 
the different regions that have had oil spills and the economic data in those regions, how many billions of dollars are, are contributed to our national GDP, how many jobs are created within those communities and everything, and what would be at risk if there were an oil spill. Now I'm going to be able to drill down and say, this is Orange County's contribution to the national GDP. And these are the businesses that were affected. And I'm going to name them and show and tell them directly how this business was affected right. and link the different size and shapes of the businesses that were affected as well, from the restaurants to the resorts to the rental businesses and to those businesses that are on the beach itself. So that's what they want to hear is the real stories right. as opposed to the bigger Numbers picture. And data and, yeah. Exactly. So right. that's what I'm really crafting is the real stories. And I think that's what's important for them to hear. Instead of calling 30 people to the hearing to testify about their business, I'm going to be able to you know, provide three to four sentence snippets from all of these different businesses and say, you know, here's what, what happened at businesses all up and down the coast or right. in this in coastal area. I can, can I assume that you may know a lot of these people personally as well? I do. I do. Yeah. I know a lot of these people, you know, um, Orange County has been home to me for a long time. Uh, you know, a lot of these folks have been colleagues and friends. I frequented their businesses for many, many years. I saw, when I saw when they started their businesses to how their businesses are now. So for me, it's a little bit more personal than just friendship. It's the fact that I'm also a business owner and I'm, I'm, I'm carrying their message of what they're having to struggle with in, in their uh, business activities. Right. It's, it's, it's personal, maybe a little more emotional for lack of a better word. It's yeah. Your home. It's your home. Yeah, you know? and I gotta ask you the cheesy podcast question, but what are your hopes getting? What What do you hope to get out of this? What What are, What's the end goal? Talking to them. Look, the end goal is to educate and inform these lawmakers of why we need to ban new offshore oil and gas drilling. We are becoming an energy independent country. We are moving towards clean energy. Uh, consumers want clean energy as well. Businesses want clean energy. It's unfortunate that a minor group of people that hold the strings in our government are trying to hold on to older energy resources. Now, I'm not saying we're going to move away from fossil fuels immediately. It's going right. to take time, but we have to move towards these renewable energies. The rest of the world is already investing in solar and wind and all these alternative sources. We cannot fall behind on any of these innovations. So really, I'm hoping that it furthers uh, the 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 ac actions to ban new offshore oil and gas drilling, accelerate innovation in clean energy, and work with businesses to deploy this as quickly as possible. Well, I think if anyone can do it, it's California, right? Like California is definitely. You guys are our leaders, so. California is leading the charge, but you know, look, uh, I think there's a lot of pressure on California as well, and we. I, I, as I talk to people in California, we are proud to innovate and take these risks because they are important to us, but we also want to bring the other states as well 
along with us. So we encourage collaboration and partnerships on this. We don't want it to be like, well, California does it. Now we have to do it. It's like, well, California did it. Here's how it was successful for them and what we can learn. Let's enact it here. And we're seeing it from like Oregon and Washington are very in line with what California is doing and we're sharing resources and ideas back and forth and other states are as well. So I think the, uh, the coalition is there and there is a coalition of the willing as well. I come from Texas. So help us out over there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, believe it or not, Texas, uh, Texas is also moving towards clean energy as well. It's just, you know, some of the leaders there want to hold on to fossil fuels because it's, it brings in big money um yep exactly follow the money but uh they'll come around they'll come yeah. around they're gonna have to I think they're gonna have to like they, they can't stay behind there, yep, there will be exactly. no choice at some point so yeah all right well fantastic i wish you the best of luck on monday and we'll I'll, I'll need to follow up on you on how that all went you know i interview a lot of south asians obviously i know a lot of indian people a lot of gujaratis you after college and we're going to talk a little bit about you. I know a lot of our guests, don't, a lot of my guests don't like talking about themselves, but I have to because you, after college, bought a surf shop. Like, I don't know any other Indian male or female that has done that. That's amazing. A, what pushed you to this idea straight after college? And then two, I got to ask, like, were your Gujarati parents like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, my love affair with the ocean began at a, at a much earlier age. And uh, I was introduced to surfing uh, when I was 14. Okay. So that was kind of like the first black eye that right. I took. Um, you know, my parents were like surfing, you know, <laughs> no. No. Well, it's because most Indians don't know how to swim. Let's be real. So. <laughs> exactly. And, and they don't like getting dirty in right? the sand or they're afraid of the water. I mean, yeah. any list of things. But uh, my my parents went along with it against their wishes. And um, I just started going down to the beach. And then I started growing my hair long. And, you know, I had hair down to here when I was like 15. Um, I had both my ears pierced. At that time, I was like part heavy metal guy and part surf guy. And my parents were like, what is going (laughs) on here? You know, it was constant arguments left and right with everything. And, you know, my parents like, we have company coming over. Don't come between this time and this time, you know, because they were embarrassed of me, you know. And, and you know, how Indian people are. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, as soon as you walk in, it's like their eyes start to judge. Right. You right. know, and they're like, oh, look at, look at, you know, look at their son. You know, like, you, uh, don't wanna, yeah. you don't want to be him. Super you you wanna... <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. You know, ah, beta, you know, yeah. war, war, war you know, you know, you know, you probably heard that a lot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I heard it so much. <laughs> and, you know, I realized what my parents had to endure the right. ridicule and everything of their son being like this surfing. And then when I went to college, I went to Point Loma Nazarene University, which is a Christian college. And, you know, once again, it's like, Hey, you know, we're Hindu. And I'm like, you're Hindu. I'm agnostic. I'm you know? uh, Yeah, I'm Vibe, you know, right, it's like, right. I, you know, and I went to Point Loma because it, this is going to be funny, but it has incredible waves right there. 
Why? That's not funny. That's amazing. Yeah. That, that, would, that totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. I went there because the dorm rooms were right on the beach and there was like perfect waves right in front of the dorm room. So I could literally put my wetsuit on in my dorm room, run out, surf, come back and change out of my wetsuit in the shower and go right to class. So for me, I was like living the dream of I think that's awesome. You know what? It's a better answer. I thought I thought you were about to say because it has the most beautiful women. So this is a way better answer. I love oh, it. I didn't get into girls until later on. For me, it was about surfing and surfing alone. And you know, um, I met some really incredible people yeah. uh while I went to college. And when when I graduated, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I knew that I loved surfing and a good friend of mine called me up and, you know, after months of looking for jobs, I'd interviewed with guys in the surf industry and nobody was hiring. And a friend of mine called me up and he goes, hey, this guy's selling his surf shop, you know, we should buy it because I'd worked at surf shops yeah. during college. So I kind of knew a little bit about it. I went down there and we looked at it and we, you know, started talking about numbers and like three months later you know, we'd come to an agreement and I'm like, gosh, we came to an agreement, but I don't even have this money. What, what, what's going on here? So I had to beg, borrow, sell everything I had, whatever I could. And my good friend, Tom and I became partners and we bought a surf shop and all of a sudden I was in the industry. And, um, what was it called? Know, it was called H2O Surf and Snowboard Shop. Okay, so that's that's why you created the H2O Winter Classic. From, yep, from okay. exactly. Got from it. there. Okay. And you know, the the shop was an incredible learning experience. I look at it like my MBA. I got an understanding of retail and how totally. business works. And it, I learned more in my retail time than I did in college. You know, I kind of just started to discover that gosh, it's like I have this interest for marketing. And that just continued to lead to more opportunities. And um, it was it was such a weird time to be in the industry, but also look at looking back how influential, you know, I was in that scene at that time with other folks. There was probably like three or four dozen of us that were really influential. Right. Looking this is, back. This is in the 90s, correct? This is in the 90s. Right. You know, so one story is like, you know, there's this brand called Volcom. Okay. Okay. Yep. And um, pretty popular brand, but yep. that was started by my college roommate. So, <laughs> you know, here, you know, my college roommate is like, we're starting a brand. And I'm like, well, great. Well, we'll carry it. So we were one of the first shops to carry Volcom. Volcom. I've even heard of it. And I've never been surfing. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like that, that, you know, we were part of that and guys that came through, our store went on to create other brands too that are now players everywhere. on the global right. scene everywhere. Right. Um, you know, and then to market ourselves, I created this surf and snowboard contest with a concert. With a concert. I love it. Was, this is amazing. Yeah. This was before any of that blending was going on. Right. But that's what went on to inspire the X Games and the Warp Tour. So, no big deal. No big deal. No, no big deal. No big deal. You know, just like oh, we're just having fun, and it's it's great to see how all that had a ripple effect across the world right. and everything. And um, you know, it was just really fun and exciting at that time, learning and 
getting more involved in the industry. Well, I can't imagine a better education than starting your own business like that. Without a doubt. I right? tell everybody, I tell everybody, every college student that I speak with when I go to universities to talk right. about my story or lessons or anything, I tell, you know, when they say, what, what do you think I should do? And number one thing I tell them, start a business, start a business. Yeah. Start a business. Doesn't matter if it fails, doesn't matter the size well, of it. Learn, learn how to fail, right? Learn how yeah. to fail. Learn, learn how, how to, to fail, fail. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think if people who have had businesses become better employees because they have an okay. understanding and a respect of what the person in charge goes through. Right. So there's a little bit more empathy with like, I know what you're going through and I'm going to be a flexible employee. Right. Right. You worked with first lady, Michelle Obama partnership for a healthier America. How yep. was that experience? It was incredible. I never got a chance to work with her directly. You know, okay. it's like they keep a lot of people of away course. from her. You know, she's yeah, busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, she's not doing anything. She's fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's just making the world a better yeah. place. You know, yeah. it's like, but uh, yeah, you know, um, I uh, I got connected with the Partnership for a Healthier America folks, and they had an initiative called Drink Up, which was okay. to get kids to drink water and make healthier choices. You know, we started talking or, um, or I started talking to them and, um, you know, at the end of the conversation, I was like, OK, well, what does success look like for you? Tell me what would be a home run for you guys. And they said, well, we would love to work with this brand called Quicksilver. OK, you know, we'd love to do something with them. What do you think? And I'm like, I'll get a meeting set up in the next two weeks. My friend's the CEO. Um, so we'll get a meeting going in the next two weeks. And they're like really? Are you kidding? And I'm like, no, we'll get a meeting going. Let's have a conversation. So two weeks later, we had a meeting with the CEO, the VP of marketing and the whole team and introduced them to the partnership for a healthier America guys and their initiative. And just said, look, I don't think we should walk away with anything solid right now, but let's just brainstorm on what we could do. I worked with the Quicksilver team and they uh, shared with me several initiatives that they had in the pipeline that they'd be open to bringing in partnership for a healthier America. And, you know, I said, I think this one is great. It's virtual. It's got a digital component, reach as many audiences. Let's uh, put this together. We shared it with PHA and we created this incredible collaboration with partnership for a healthier America and Quicksilver. I think you uh, deserve to meet her. I think we should make this happen. Let's just throw it <laughs> out there, out there in the universe and it'll happen. That's amazing. I know you have a son. I do. Some, I have a 10-year-old, 10-year-old boy. Oh, wow. He's like an, almost an adult. I have a seven and four-year-old, uh, two girls, and my seven-year-old is basically like 15 already. So it's, it's they're growing up fast. She acts like she's 15. Yeah, my 10-year-old is like, you know, a parent to me. I mean, yeah. he's always like, Dad, don't do that. Dad, like, no, Dad, no, no, seriously. Like, stop. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah. I'm, I'm right there. I'm like, aren't you seven? <laughs> like, weren't you just born? I don't really understand this. Um, So I got to ask, what's his name? His name is Vipe also. Oh, nice. Vipe nice. 2.0. Two Vipe 2. That's like a, he should be in a band. Vipe 2.0. Was he the inspiration behind writing your children's book? He was. Okay. He and all of his young friends were the inspiration behind it. I'd always wanted to write a children's book. And awesome. um, I, I didn't really know the subject matter or how I wanted to write it or anything, but after seeing my son and his growing love for the ocean and how he respects the environment and everything, 
I looked at it and said, gosh, it's like a children's book about inspiring children to want to protect the ocean as opposed to the doom and gloom of the ocean or anything like that. You know, it's like, what can I do? So uh, I I picked this story. I pieced it together. uh, The Radical Undersea Journey of Mr. Dude. I love it. It's it's such a fun story. It's a local surf hero who everybody respects. One day has an encounter with some trash in the ocean and he has this experience and when he comes to comes back to shore he's changed and he wants to spread the message of why we need to protect our oceans it's fun it's humorous it's inspirational and it's it's really something that i look at you know for being involved in the ocean conservation space for so long is that if we want to protect our environment we have to start with our children right. and they have to grow up with it. You know, they can't wait until they're 30 years old. Like me, I was 30 years too late to learn that, uh, right. what I needed to do. And I probably made quite a few mistakes along the way, but he is growing up with this built into his mm-hmm. lifestyle. He's got his reusable bottles, bags, bag, you know, everything around him. He knows what goes in recycling and everything. So he's growing up with that. And I think if we can teach our children, that will will have a generational shift right. where everybody is doing the right thing all the time. How amazing is it to see him fall in love with the ocean for you? That must be just so emotionally overwhelming. It's bittersweet in all honesty. It? It, it's bittersweet. And I'll tell you why, because I'm an action sports guy, okay? And my son loves snowboarding, so we're good there. He loves hockey. I'm starting to love hockey because he loves it. He's totally into ice hockey. Okay. My love is surfing, and he is like, no, Dad, I'm not into surfing. And I'm just like... (laughs) You're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, it's like with all the access that you have... Like you could, anybody, all the top guys will make you a surfboard. My friends are sending me wetsuits. They're sending me clothes for him. He gets to hang out with all these guys that run the industry. And he's right. like, yeah, dad, pass on surfing. And I'm like, geez, man. You know but- what though, Vibe? I have a feeling, give, give, give him a couple of years. I think it might be one of those things where, you know, dad, that's dad's thing. Dad's good at it. That's his territory. Like he may be intimidated and he may, I don't know. I feel like. Give, give me a call in five years. He might get yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've learned that, you know, um, it's not about me. It's right. about him. And, right, you know, I, my, my thing is encouraging and supporting anything that he wants to do. Right. And when he, you know, took to ice hockey, I knew nothing about it. I still don't know much about it. But I'll tell you, watching him play games and do his training and all that stuff is so enjoyable for me. I love it. It's so cool. It's amazing. And, you know, just snowboarding with him as well is so much fun. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's better. I'm sure he's better than dad now. Right. Oh no, I still, I, (laughs) at hockey. Yeah. At hockey, he's, he's the guy cause I don't do ice hockey, but at snowboarding, Snowboarding. I'll still, I'll still smoke him. But he is way more adventurous on snowboarding than I am. I mean, he is already hitting the rails and everything when we go snowboarding. So he's, you know, why might because at our age, our backs may break. So yeah, oh yeah, there's there's things that might happen that may not work out. So yeah, no, absolutely, (laughs) Absolutely. that's fantastic. And so then, can people get the book online or? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's available at votetheocean.org. Okay. And that's my nonprofit, but you can uh, purchase it there, uh, get a signed copy or a personalized cool. copy as well. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get one for my girls for sure. And you had an article written up on Medium about the five things I wish I knew before becoming a CEO, something to that extent. Yeah. D- did you ever think your Lambuvar surfing <laughs> tattoo wearing self would ever be part of that article? Never. Never. I I never, I never imagined me being a CEO or a chairman of a board or of many boards. boards. Exactly. You know, there are, there are so many things that I have been so fortunate to be part of that. I never imagined that I would. And, you know, even recently I've been invited to be part of some projects that I'm like, I really don't have any business being involved in this, but gosh, what a challenge. Yeah. And I'm up for it. And it's just so exciting that, um, you know, my career has been built off of pursuing a passion and and helping others. You're very lucky that you got the combination of the two, right? Um, I'm very lucky. and, And also, I think as we get older, I think the key is to keep being curious, I find. Oh, I, always. I'm, I'm always, I mean, right. I am devouring podcasts, articles daily. I mean, nonstop. I right. mean, if I'm not reading three to five articles a day about learning something new, um, I feel as if I'm not contributing to the responsibilities that I've taken on. I think right. one of the things is serving on boards requires me to constantly bring new information to the attention of my fellow board members and the organizations not relying on what i've known from the past of how it was it's like well what's happening now and what is the immediate information that we can use so um while the board time might not be a whole lot of my time i would probably say 60 to 75 75 percent of my time is spent on learning new things right no that's great keeps us young right you had mentioned that, and I, I don't know verbatim what you said, but you basically said you're trying to get back into maybe your South Asian roots or connections or network. Why do you think you're trying to do that now? Like what, what's the shift? Yeah. You know, a couple things. Um, you know, one is, uh, I lost my mom to COVID earlier this year. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> so it was a challenge and, you know, I saw everything that my mom wanted to still do while she was here. And um, I think uh, now that my brother and I are orphans, you know, all we have is each other. But it's also, you know, looking at like, well, I want my son to be able to connect with his history and everything. You know, I want him to experience uh, where my dad grew up and everything and what he went through. So I think that's why I want to reconnect with the South Asian community, especially something in India. And, you know, I learned something really cool about my dad later in life. And I understood that he had a sense of philanthropy in him as well. But I didn't realize that until later. And it's interesting because Mega and I connected on this and she really talked about like dignity, you know, restoring dignity. And that is exactly what my dad wanted to do. And uh, so in his village in Digas, okay, 
one of the things that he saw what that was needed and it seems so minimal or minuscule to think like this but you know as soon as he had success and he had the resources he built a bus shelter in the village you know that's amazing and it is it is and it's like you know to understand the impact of this is that the village was was pretty much dirt roads okay right. and makeshift dirt houses with some wood and concrete and different materials and you know one of the things that my dad realized that when he was trying to provide for his family and build a career and learn and educate for himself he would have to go stand at the tree in the center of the village to wait for the bus to come and take him to surat to go to college Where's okay my dad is from there yeah you know that whole community right, right, right. there and you know at times the environment can be very harsh so the scorching heat the pouring rain um the lack of water no bathroom any of these items that would make it hard for a young person out of the village to get on a bus and go to surat with right. dignity and not get off the bus drenched dirty whatever so for him he said you know let's build a bus shelter this should be something where everybody in the community can stay dry stay cool you know have a restroom have clean drinking water and all that stuff and be able to get on a bus and go to go to the city to improve their quality of life it's so, such a know. simple i mean yeah when you look at it simple concept but what a amazing impact i think that's one of the sweetest stories i've heard Oh, it's an incredible, incredible impact. You yeah. know, what it had on the village, it uh, it became the center of town. Uh, they built a temple around it. You know, just all the activity around it uh, right. blossomed. But I look back and I talk to people from the village, you know, and they tell me how that became an incredible stepping stone for young people in the community. And it just goes to show that it's like something so small can transform a community. Right, right. So it doesn't you know, take I, much. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. So, right. you know, it's like I, I want my brother to go there because he hasn't seen it. So I want okay. to show it to him. And I want to take my son to show it to him. So, yeah. you know, that's that's you know part of like what I think connecting with the South Asian community, especially over there. And I right. know that's what my mom would want it as well. She always dreamt of us going there together after my son got a little bit older. So, you know, in the coming years, that's what our plan is. I think that's fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm so glad we connected because this uh, podcast is getting bigger in India as well. So lots of, lots of ears there. Um, and I'm sorry about your mom. Thank you. Um, I'm not saying this just because you're my guest and you're in front of me. I, I really do. I love your journey and your path and your story. People, I, everyone I interview is a trailblazer, but I really, I, I love how unique you are. You really just did your own thing. And that's what the whole show is about. And I love meeting people like you. Like you've made me smile throughout this whole hour. So thank you. Last cheesy podcast question, I swear. So your journey has been crazy, amazing, insane. Is there, I don't want to say motto or maybe lesson that you've learned throughout this that held true through the whole thing? Ah, uh, yeah, there is. And it's been a personal motto of mine for probably the last 10 years. But 
it's also, I guess, been my motto for many years, probably for the last 35 years of my professional career. I just didn't realize it was my motto until later on. Right. Um, but my motto has been to make others successful. And, you know, I always look at it in the sense that when I was always able to help others, you know, it, 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 it helped my personal journey out. Right. And it's just so cool to see other people who asked for help or needed guidance, trusted me to be a thought partner, and they benefited from that conversation and to see where they are now, you know, living their dreams, but more important, you know, adopting my motto and using it in their circle as well. So I, I think it's a simple way of saying it, you know, it's like, I think when we help others, we help ourselves. Right. Right. Otherwise, I guess, why are we here? You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah what's the point? Um, Life's too short. Life's, life's too, too short, short to focus on ourselves. Going by too fast. Well, I wish you the best on Monday. Um, Thank you. I think that first tattoo, just keep, keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and at some point you're going to teach me to surf because I've never gone out and surfed. I grew up in Texas and never did it so anytime so while i'm recording this closing vibe is either testifying before congress as we speak or has just finished testifying whatever the case may be vibe we wish you the best you guys please check out his website vibethesai.com to read and understand how you can get involved in saving our oceans. As always, you can follow me at tuckered.podcast, tuckered.withami.com. It's a big week, guys. I'm doing a live event this week, podcasting at a live event, which would be super fun. And then I'm headed out to SF. So yeah, it's all good things. Just trying to survive. Thank you guys for listening. Appreciate the support. Love ya. This is Tuckered Out.